The rest of you can open up to James chapter 2. We've made it to chapter 2 now. Uh, if you're new with us, I overheard someone saying, yeah, at our church, we're going through James one verse at a time. And I said, well, it only feels that way, and it'll actually pick up a little bit. But there's so much in James 1, we had to take it uh, at a pretty slow clip. A couple quick announcements for you, um, just as we get started. One is that Summer Theologians series starts this Wednesday night, 6.30 to 8 p.m. For the next six weeks, we'll take a break for 4th of July. So the second Wednesday of this series will not be meeting. But essentially for six weeks, we'll be meeting here on Wednesday nights, midweek in the church. Many of our community groups have taken the summer off. And so uh, we'll be offering three different tracks. One is um, the Christian and politics. We have a general election coming up this fall. Uh, many Christians wonder, what is the role of government? What does the Bible have to say? So Cal will be teaching that here on Wednesdays. Uh, Jim Cook, one of our elders, will be teaching through um, just growing in Christ. And some people haven't connected the dots. They may have sat in church and read their Bibles, but um, how do I grow in Christ? How do I kind of put things together? And then I'll be teaching one called uh, Parenting Beyond Your Capacity. I think most parents um, feel relatively up to here, and, um, and we just want to encourage you. We just want to say there's helps and things that are available, uh, and we know that God has entrusted your kids to you. Um, and so we'll have, we'll have some fun with that on Wednesday nights. So that starts this week. There's going to be a great program going for your kids. Lots of hard work's going on behind the scenes to have ministry for your kids. So they'll be well loved on and cared for as well. Um, so that I'll be here at 630. Um, also, uh, to all parents, nursery through fifth grade, there's a parent meeting today right after church, 1245 to 2. So please stick around. Gria um, is our newly appointed children's director, and he's going to be sharing some really exciting things going on in children's. Uh, we really want and need you here. We want feedback from you. We really, um, everything we do here at NBC in regards to children's ministry really centers on the family. We have this saying that God's first and best greenhouse for spiritual growth is the home. It's not the classroom at church. And so uh, we really want and need your input um, as parents into this ministry as we're kind of making some changes and on some exciting things. So everyone in James 2? Good. I see some nods. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's a Bible in the seat in front of you. That's your gift if you don't have one. Um, I won't even call and check to make sure you're reading it, but I highly recommend it because uh, it's really not that decorative uh, otherwise. It's better for reading. Um, all right. How many of you have ever been close to someone famous or, or known someone famous and hung out with them before? Okay. Um, not many. A couple of you. Okay. We'll hear those stories after church. I'm dying to hear them. Um, I'm actually related to one. And you've probably never heard of him because he's not famous in this country. But evidently, he's a pretty huge deal down in Mexico. And uh, I was there a few years ago visiting family deep in the heart of Mexico. And I had to catch a plane out earlier than some of the rest of my family. So we're, we're kind of off where my family lives. And it's about an hour and a half drive into Mexico City. So I went with my cousin um, and his entourage. He has an entourage. So that's how famous he is. And we went and drove into Mexico City. And I hung out with him for a day. And... I'm like, cuz, show me around. Show me what's, you know, what's, what's to do around here. So we kind of went to these different places. And one of the things he had to do, the reason he was getting back, is he was, uh, he was studying up for a, a, a new role he was going to do. And he needed to know how to fence. So he was going to the Olympic, the Mexican Olympic fencing place, whatever, uh, where you learn how to fence. So that was his deal. Uh, so, um, so we went and did that. And he was evidently with this other guy that I just met that day. And evidently he was a pretty big deal too. And the reason I know this is because after we went, uh, basically wherever we went, special treatment. Not only special treatment, but double looks, like whiplash on the neck, whipping out cameras, phones, taking pictures. We get to the, to the restaurant we were going to eat at, and we sit down, you know, and, and the waitress kind of comes up. And I've heard my cousin's kind of a good-looking guy. I don't know. It's weird because he's my cousin, so I can't really judge. But she comes up, and she's like, you know, going to take our order. And then she sees who it is. And you just see her whole body language is flustered and, and this and that. And all of a sudden, everyone's coming to our table to help. You know, all the wait staff is there to help with us. And it was just kind of funny because I was like offering autographs. You know, they're like, you know, guilty by association. This guy must be famous too. I'm kidding, I wasn't. But I wanted to. That would have been so cool. All that to say this, when, when I hung out with him for a day, here's, here's what I observed. The only time I've ever really hung out with someone who, who was that well known and what I realize is this, is that, you know, in, in those, you know, 24 hours or whatever, wherever we went, absolute and utter special attention. People stopped and noticed 
everything we were doing, watching our every move of where we went, where we parked, how, you know, how he stood in line, everything. And it just dawned on me. I'm sitting here looking and thinking of that experience and thinking about the passage we're going to look at today. And what the passage talks about is how does this look in the church? This is totally common. If someone famous, you know, walks into a building today, people would stop and just drop what they're doing and give special attention, right? And we would be somewhat enamored with that person. Here's some of the themes that come out of today's text. Acceptance, discrimination, mercy, judging, appearances, and equality. Do you see that these are topics not just for the church and Christian folk to be talking about? These are ideas and topics that are all over the place. Tolerance, I suppose, could be thrown in there as well. Here's what I'm almost certain of. I I can't say with utter certainty and clarity, I will say this. I think most every single person in this building has been on both sides of the favoritism fence. I think there have been times where you have been shown special favor and you have, you, have been, you have been set aside. And I think there are probably other times where you have maybe dished that out to someone and given special favor or been partial to someone uh, and, and not to someone else. The favoritism fence does what every single wall is intended to do. A wall is intended to keep some people in, right, and to keep some people out. And the text we're going to look at is fairly self-explanatory. I'm going to read it. We're going to see a principle. He's going to give kind of a, a big illustration there, and then and then we'll look at it. He really does... We're going to take this in two weeks because he goes at it for about 13 verses on this one big idea. We're going to take one through seven today and then look at the second half uh, next week because it's uh, an important theme. Now, remember, James is the half-brother of John, right? And James didn't start off following Christ. He, he was one, uh, like all of us, he was in rebellion against Christ. Uh, but, but he walked with him, and what we see in James, so much of the Sermon on the Mount, if you haven't been reading Matthew 5, 6, and 7, go and check that out and just see how that parallels with James. There's so much to the Sermon on the Mount that we see in James, and it's just kind of juxtaposed there. But think about this, this is something that Jesus said in John 13, and here's kind of the perfect standard about loving one another that he's going off of. And then he gives us these ideas. Here's John 13, just listen. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now the idea of loving someone and loving one another is a new command But it's not new, right? I mean, if you've read the Old Testament, this is not new idea that all of a sudden we're supposed to love each other. I think the way that Jesus is ushering in a new command is this. He's ushering in a new season and a more full and abundant picture of what the love of God looks like to people. And all of a sudden, God comes near in the person of Jesus Christ. God lives among us. We get to see God interact with people, talk with people, you know, walk and, and live life with people. So all of a sudden we get to see a, a, a new level, I guess, of, of how to love one another. James is taking this perfect standard and he's writing it to a dispersed group of people, right? And, and what's happened is, as we have a tendency to do as people, uh, here's, the, here's the perfect path of love that Christ has shown us, right? And we tend to wander off of it. We tend to veer off of that. And what James is saying is that this partiality that's going on, these walls of division that are going on are actually showing up in the church, the last place that they should be showing up. The place that Jesus actually said, man, when people walk in here, they ought to have a sense, a deep sense, that God is revealed in this place, not because of a cross hanging up, not because of the volume or quality of our preaching or singing, but by the way you interact with people next to you and in front of you and behind you. Isn't that crazy? That's the kind of love. That's what loving one another ought to do. It ought to be that level of worship. All right, follow along with me. I'm going to read James 1 all the way through 13. Okay, so this is one idea. We're breaking it into two weeks. Here it goes. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes, uh, also comes in, And if you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down at my feet, 
Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? For you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. So there it is. I didn't want to break that up because you see, that's just one flow of thought all the way through. We're going to take the first seven verses. If I could put the principle into uh, terms for us that we could remember, it would be this. Favoritism is sin. Right? Some of you, this describes your childhood, right? You are either the one with your mouth wide open or the one getting stood on. Um, Here's the principle. Favoritism is sin. Stop it and show mercy. Another word for stop it and do the other is repent, right? Turn from what you're doing and go do the right things of God. Uh, there are some sins, I think, in, in, uh, probably in every culture that are, that are more acceptable than others. And, and it's a, it's an utter error and a fallacy to believe that way and think that way. Um, uh, and, and yet there are some, there are some sins that we would all agree here today are grotesque and, and a stench in the nostrils of God, and no one should ever be found doing that. But there are other ones that we let each other slide on. I think favoritism is one of those that we kind of gloss over a little bit. We say, well, we didn't really mean to, or they're a little bit different, or, I, or I'm not called to love that kind of person, and, and, and sort of thing. And part of my hope here today is this. I want to show you the stench that favoritism, like all sin, is in the nostrils of our God. I want to show you and elevate it to a place where we shouldn't be glossing over it. We shouldn't be just saying, well, uh, I struggle in that area, but that one's no big deal. Now, I just spent, last week when you were here in church, we were driving up to Hume Lake camp with our youth. Uh, we all made it back safely, but it did take down our youth pastor, which is hard because he's 6'9". Uh, but he is at home in bed right now, sick. So you could be praying for Ben. Um, everyone else made it, made it through unscathed. So uh, I like teasing him that he's in his 30s now, and that's part of what happens. Never mind that I'm in my 40s and I'm of perfect health today. <laughs> Love you, Ben. So last week, I just spent most of my week last week with 500 middle school students meditating on this passage. Now, let me ask you a question. This should be an easy one for you. Do you think I have some illustrations in mind of seeing this played out, maybe both good and bad? Probably, right? Uh, some of you experienced this, but most elementary students that I know and, and people that I know, you know, in elementary school, people are just all friends. They just, birthday parties are great because boys and girls are both invited. You know, kids just, they just, there's just kind of a good mix of kids in elementary school. All of a sudden, did you notice that when middle school hits, many of you went to 6th, 7th, 8th, some of you 7th, 8th, as soon as you hit middle school, all of a sudden, you're not allowed to hang. You know, certain kids that have known each other for life, all of a sudden, one fell in the cool crowd and one didn't. And all of a sudden, it's really confusing. And, and it's like, well, I can't really hang out with you anymore, at least at school. And it's really hurtful. And it's really confusing for kids to, to kind of go through that. And middle schoolers are masters at all of a sudden starting to divide up and see who's in what crowd and all of that. And middle school, in part, is about trying on different roles and trying on different hats and such. And... Um, I've talked to many students through the years who just say, man, back in middle school, that was where you know, some, some divisions happened and it really started to, to set a, a tone for things. Now, if only we could outgrow favoritism, right? I mean, the reality is it's not that we're adults now and, and we don't struggle with this, right? I wish that, like, you know, middle school acne, we just outgrew it somehow. And all of a sudden, as adults, we don't struggle with this. But the reality is walls are everywhere. I mean, at the office, in your family, Right? Uh, at school, uh, at, at sports teams. I mean, there are just dividing lines. And I think 
We as humans are masters at finding different nuanced little piddly ways to divide over things. And certainly as we watch the Olympics come together for a sporting event for a couple of weeks, that's one of the few things, even there, there will be divisions and whatnot. That's one of the few things that, you know, for a season, every few years, people are going to kind of come, come together on. But worldwide, this, this is certainly an issue. Now, if you're new with us on this journey, we've gone with kind of a Western theme with James. Because James is so blunt. He's so action-oriented. He's not going to sit around in a tie and discuss things. He's going to be wearing chaps, have a gun, and go do things out on the range. So we just went with this whole Western theme. And what we've done is each week we've kind of given you cowboy wisdom. Okay, And we've mashed that together. We call it a, a cowboy's dumb. So here's your cowboy's dumb in, in light of this week. This is how a cowboy on the range might say what we're talking about. Meanness don't happen overnight. Right? That over the course of years, many of you, when I brought up middle school and junior high, maybe you went back to a hurt. Maybe you were on one side of the fence then and you're on a different side now. Maybe you were the perpetrator of ones who, who shunned friendships and you thought, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I give in to that? But there's been a pattern of this, and it's so deeply ingrained, and I think the church doesn't talk about this much. This is why it's great to go through a book. It brings up topics that we may not otherwise bring up. But it's a sin, and it's a serious offense. And if you've broken the law of murder, we would just say, praise God that he's redeemed you from that heinous, disgusting sin of taking a life. But how many have gotten up and said, you know what? God has rescued me from the deathly clutches of favoritism and partiality. I was seeped in it. I looked around and judged everyone who wasn't in my little clique. I don't know if I've ever heard a testimony like that. But do you see that both of those are sin? Utter sin, and sin always leads to death. All right, now to find out just how kind of silly and petty and temporal, the little dividing lines that we do with each other are, here's what you need to do. You need to just travel, okay? You either travel in time or you travel to another place, and it will reveal very clearly. Kids, not right now, but later on, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask mom and dad this question. I want you to ask them, what was it, mom, dad, that, you know, what style thing or accessory or, or item did you have to have so that you didn't feel like a dork, right? So when, when you were a kid, when you were a youth, what did you have to do? What haircut did you have to have? What shoes did you have to buy? What did you put up as, I will die on this hill if I don't have this, so that you fit in, right? You ask them that. Now, what you're going to do, be prepared. You're going to laugh. You're going to think that is so silly because what they're going to tell you is going to seem really trivial right now. They may even tell you with a little bit of embarrassment in their voice because they'll think, you know, it seems silly now, but, and then they'll tell you, okay? So that's that's time travel. If you go back in time, that's what happens. Now, here's the little fascinating tidbit. This is a little style tip for, for you all who are challenged in this way. Time has a way of making cool things lame and lame things cool again. Have you noticed this? So what's handy about that is if you're really cheap or uncreative, hang on to that style, okay? Press on through a decade or two. It's usually a 20-year span. Hang on to it. It's coming back, right? You'll be lame for like 20 years, but all of a sudden you'll be on the cutting edge of something. They're like, man, you're all over it. And they'll be like, Grandpa, you're hip. And it's like, no, I'm just cheap, you know, because I've just hung on to the same thing. Right? For, for, for time and time again. Um, just as a, as a very quick tip on this. Now again, I just hung out with, with middle schoolers for, for a week. So it was just so fun to watch and catch different fashion things. Um, but let me take you a very quick tour from the 70s to present on baseball caps. Okay? Now here is the 70s trucker's cap. Alright? This is a guy from the, the, uh, the show Dukes of Hazard. He's wearing a 70s trucker cap. Greasy, old, kind of like it's vented back here where, you know, you can kind of do things. That was the 70s. Um, now, here is the 80s, and uh, this you see just kind of a high brim, a little bit of an arch to it, kind of an awkward pose by Raphael. He's just standing there, you know, looking a little awkward, but, but there's the 80s. Now, we jump forward into the 90s, okay? The Fresh Prince kicked it backwards and angled it a little bit, and he threw on the acid wash jean hat, which is a whole other nuanced side trail, but there he is sporting something brand new. Most in the 90s from my era, the second you get a hat, you take it and you just start working it. You're bending it like this. You're, you're tweaking it. You're always doing that. Some guys, like from the south, I think, shoved it in their back pocket. 
Uh, you can take this look and move it backwards. Um, not very functional. Uh, you know, when the sun's in your eyes. I mean, this, this guy's committed to his fashion, and sometimes it's not, it's not going to work out for you. Um, so, so after that, we kind of jump into the modern era. The modern era, here's one of the cool things that's going on right now. You leave the tags on. If there's a sticker, if there's a price tag, if there's something, you leave it all on there. And I don't know if the idea is that, look, I bought this yesterday. We're like, dude, you've had that have for like three months, you know. But you leave the sticker on. And I'm not sure what that's about. I'm getting old. But you notice the brim, okay? There's no bend to it. You could cook pancakes on there if it got hot enough. Just flat. That's what you want nowadays. Um, now, this is the extreme. I think you use, are they bobby pins, hair pins? How do you get, I don't know how you hold this on, but it's almost, it's a little bit yarmulke-ish. But if, if you, a lot of commitment to keeping that on. I don't, I don't know how that works. It wouldn't work with my Jeep, that's for sure. Now, Bieber really, two more. Bieber, Bieber brought it all home. You can't see it, but there's a sticker underneath. He's got the sticker going. Tons of kids. This is who I saw at, 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 at Hume Lake this week. No kids would admit it. But Bieber was everywhere. Bieber fever was everywhere at camp. Everyone, you like Bieber? I don't like Bieber. No. But the hair's there. The hat's tilted just so. And like I said, it all comes back around because Bieber looks an awful lot like Babe. It's just very similar. It just, it all, it all kind of cycles. So like I said, if you are, if you are old and confused, just hang on to your style. And at some point, it will definitely come back. All right. So you could travel in time. And that shows how silly that is, right? If I wear a bent cap right now, people just look at me and go, you're old. And I'm like, I know, I like the bent cap. I, I, I don't want to straighten it out. I don't want to iron my hat. I like it this way. Uh, but that's a, that's a really petty, silly thing to do. And start thinking about the things you do. They're probably just as petty. If you travel to other countries, um, again, what you see are cultural norms that are normal there completely abnormal here. Just in this last year, I saw men carrying purses. I saw men walking down the street holding hands. That's an Ethiopian thing. It's a sign of friendship. It would just be like walking walking along. That seems weird to us here. Uh, in China, you know, men, women, old, young, everyone feels the freedom to just, you know, hawk loogies everywhere, all the time, in any public setting. And it's totally cool. It's totally normal and accepted and, and natural. And I did not fit in because I wasn't doing that. And I was okay with that. I was okay with not fitting in. Think about women who, you know, again, China, who, who bound their feet because they wanted tiny feet, so they actually broke the bones, tied them up to keep their feet nice and small, right? That was the in thing. Uh, you go to some tribes, and they've got the long neck like Barbie, right? They put rings on. I don't even know how they do it, but it looks really uncomfortable, good in crowds, because you could see, you know, you could kind of see over people. But those are the dividing lines, style and fashion, that in other cultures we see it as, that's silly and petty. What a weird thing to do to, to fit in until we come to our own culture and someone points it out for us. Now, in the U.S., here's what I think rules the day. If not for you, certainly for people around you and certainly for the next generation coming up, celebrities, okay? People have always been fascinated with lifestyles, the rich and famous, and all that kind of stuff. People have always wanted to know that. There's always been a market for that. And celebrities rule the day today. People want to look at it. What's, what's ironic, and James points this out, those people you're giving preference to, those people that you're idolizing, those people that you're supporting by, by, by running after you know, articles written about them and all kinds of stuff, they blaspheme the holy name of God. Furthermore, they don't care about you, Right? I mean, some of them might be kind of nice at some point, but they don't care about you. And, and we do this in Christian. There's Christian celebrity too, right? It's possible for us. I love that our youth ministry isn't set up this way. But it's possible for us. Camp's a, a great example of this. Hume has a great passion to not put on pedestals the band. The band members are out doing wreck. The band members are out just hanging out with kids. We have a band that's not made up of prima donnas. You will see them just doing, they are body life members of the church here. And we have, a, we have an ability in church culture even to create Christian celebrity and somehow think that a guy writing or speaking out in Florida has it all together, right? Until you get up close and ask his family and you realize, you know what? He's a normal guy or gal just like us, struggles and is trying to find his or her way. So let's, let's not make that mistake of, of putting it up there. Um, there's a, there's a uh, magazine cover 
um, from, from several years back, Esquire magazine, it says what Michelle Pfeiffer needs is, and then it says this on the inside, absolutely nothing. Now, whole separate topic of ideas, I mean, I mean, a, a appearance and self-image and all of that. This is, this is just this nurturing culture that's going on of what we put up there, what you're supposed to look like, who you're supposed to be. Totally separate message. But woven into this idea, though, is appearances, isn't it? And looking at someone and saying, you're notable and you're not. You're worth my attention. You're worth my time. You're worth my best effort and my presence. You just aren't. And I tell you what, I want to brag on our youth for a second. Loved, loved, loved the way our guys hung out this week. Loved the way our girls hung out this week in junior high. It was an awesome sight to see. It was really, really exciting to see. I love what's being nurtured and kind of cultivated here. But let me show you the reality of this. A newspaper uh, reporter, this is back when they had newspapers, uh, actually discovered a few days later, he went and did a little research project and found a bill for $1,525 from a touch-up artist about this photo. And it turns out Michelle Pfeiffer actually does need something. And $1,500 buys you quite a bit. Here is a partial list of the artist's bill, okay? Clean up complexion, soften eye lines, soften smile lines, add color to lips, trim chin. You wish you could do that. Uh, remove neckline, soften line under earlobe, add highlights to earrings, add blush to cheek, clean up neckline, remove stray hair, remove hair strands on dress, adjust color, adjust hair on top of head, add dress to side to create better line, add forehead. Okay, now, if you got 1500 bucks, every photo can add forehead to you if you want and need it. What's the lie? Michelle Pfeiffer needs absolutely nothing. The truth, the reality is something totally different. Here's the point. The very people that we sometimes idolize and talk about and think about and research and study up on and then emulate, blaspheme the name of God and are a total deception. It's, it's, a, it's a false picture of what is being put up in front of us. What if we just did this? What if we just realized that every single person we met was 100% human? And we just left it at that. I know some of the junior hires are like, no, but they're cyborgs. There's probably not. Okay, so let's just, let's just leave it that every person you meet is 100% human. And that's how you interact with them. That's how you talk about them. They do things. They have things. They are other things. That's great. But first and foremost, they're human, right? And that's just the, the level that we talk about them and think about them. This is a line from a song uh, that is just good to remember as you drive around, look at billboards, as you have your iPad open and you're seeing a sidebar of things being thrown at you, truth statements that are being thrown at you, and to remember that this is a perpetual lie. It's an ongoing deception that is happening for you. Now, some of you maybe aren't enamored with the haves and you don't think about them often and you're like, that's totally not me. Maybe you're repelled by the have-nots. Either way, that's sin. If you're enamored today with celebrity and those who have it all and you constantly find yourself struggling, Lord, help me not to be tempted by the rich and those who have it all. God's got a message for you in this passage. If you're over here, though, and you just say, God, I struggle with people who are different than me and who are the have-nots and who are shabby clothed and who, who don't have much of anything together, they repel me. Don't you see both sides? We need to grow in the grace to love as God would love. So, let's look at, at God's attributes. Turn to Deuteronomy 10. We're going some Old Testament on you. So flip open to, to Deuteronomy 10 for a moment. We'll hang out in a couple of passages there. And what I want to show you is an attribute of God that is not often talked about, and it's His impartiality. Right? We talk about all kinds of things. All the omnis. He's omnipresent and, and omni... Uh, they're all escaping me. He's all the omnis. Uh, but, but rarely do we sit down and talk about the fact that God is impartial. And yet that's what we see in the scripture. Part of the fall is that you and I are not naturally impartial. We are going to have to fight against this. We're going to have to struggle against it and let the Lord grow something new in us. All right. Deuteronomy 10, 17. You guys there? Deuteronomy 10, 17 says this. For the Lord... Your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Do you hear all those descriptors? This giant God. 
And then look what is attached at the end of this. Who is not partial and takes no bribe. Right in the midst of all this majestic thing is this tacked on line that God is not partial. And he doesn't take a bribe. By the way, just by review from two weeks ago about showing hope and looking at God's heart for the vulnerable, look at verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. That's the foreigner, the, 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 the traveler in your land, giving him food and clothing. Now, categories and rankings that our world spends so much time talking about moving the pieces. I put all those cards together and people talk about what, what rank are you? What number are you? What, what suit are you? Let's, let's talk about and write about and blog about, you know, who's hot and who's not and all of this stuff. So much time, so much energy and emotion are non-issues with God. Almost all of that. Read it. Look at it. Almost all of it has nothing to do with the fact that they're 100% human or not. Most all of it is as trivial as a baseball cap. And yet we go on sometimes, year after year, week after week, just eating this stuff up, buying this stuff up, filling our time with it. Race and personality and quarterly earnings and power and style, what neighborhood you live in, what car you drive, who you're dating this week. All of those things are trivial and temporal and aren't at the core of who you are. And those kinds of things are non-issues with God when he's assessing people. I want you to do something right now. I want you to turn to someone next to you. Maybe talking to the back of the head because they're turning the other way. That's okay. Do it awkwardly. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are made in the image of God. Do that right now. All right. Now, how are some of you still talking? That wasn't that long of a phrase. You're like, I know it in the Greek. Cool. Um, God wants to restore. Think about what restore means. Restore means it was broken, and he wants to bring it back into working order. God wants to restore, I think, in our hearts and our minds that when we look at individuals, we see the imprint of God in that person. Maybe for some of you, here's the message. When you look in the mirror, you don't hear voices of your angry sixth-grade teacher or a parent or a coach or just the whispers of the enemy, but you see the imprint of God in your reflection, and you just take that as truth. I want to show you from a few different places. Flip over to Deuteronomy 15. I just want to show you God's impartiality in a few different segments of life. And I want to show you this because we are to be emulating the Father. We're to, we're to look like God in our behavior. So I want you to see this. Look at Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 7. This is God's impartiality seen in His law for living as a community. He sets up laws and boundaries that says, this is how life will work. I live on a relatively busy street. We have a sidewalk. We've drawn a line and said, dogs and kids, you don't get to go past this when we're playing out here. Life works better when we're not in the hospital, right? Traction is not fun. So we're going to stay on this side of it. God put laws in place to how to live as a community. And listen to, to, to um, Deuteronomy 15, starting in verse 7. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor, kind of relevant here in our valley right now, in, in any one of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye Look grudgingly on the poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand, to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now, because James specifically was talking about the fact that people were coming into the assembly, that would be church. This is talking about more than just the person 
with a sign on the side of the road, but it doesn't exclude the person on the sign on the side of the road. Catch the drift? Some people walk into this building, and some of you are in this mode maybe today. Poor emotionally, poor socially, poor in terms of friends and notoriety. You want to be here, but it's hard for you. We're moving to two services this fall. I am praying, we are trusting for God, that God will flood this place with people who have never been to church, those who have not been to church in a long time, those who've been burned and hurt by the church. I would long for them before a single word from God's, God's word was spoken, that they'd have a sense of God in this place. Just from the way that they're greeted, just from the way that they're welcomed in, just from the intense care that you give to them, right? And that's an act of worship. We can all grow in that. I want to say, you guys do a great job with this. We have this saying of come as you are. And, and I've heard from many people who've come through, passed through, are still here, that just said, man, when I was here, I was welcomed in. I, w- I want to compliment you. So I will pass that on to you. Grow in it. Don't get lax in that. There's so much more we need to do, right? Catch up with your buddies like we all want to on, on your own time. Come here looking for someone to minister to. Come here looking to give to the poor. Come here looking to give to the one who looks rich and has it all together. Same basic need, right? Love, acceptance, a right relationship with God. 100% human. Let's do that. Here's another one in court rulings. Flip over to Deuteronomy 16 and look at verse 19. It says this, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. So there it is again. In, in his rules for living as a community, here's how this is going to go. Don't be impartial. Don't show favorites. In court, here's the command. Do not be partial. Don't you see that justice is ruined when you show favoritism? God's a God of justice. So what ruins that, what spoils that, what introduces cancer into that and screws it all up is your partiality. You're judging a book, as it were, by the cover. Here's another one. You don't need to turn there, but 1 Timothy 5.20 says this. Church discipline. There's actually rules now for the church in this new era. Here is how this is to take place. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It gives very specific rules even on how to bring a charge against an elder, the pastor of the church. No one is free from this. We're to do this without partiality. So God's lovingly showing this character. Do you sense the black and whiteness of this? These are commands. These are not suggestions. These are as clear-cut as you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. So let's not be a lawbreaker in these. One more is in the final judgment. Listen to Romans 2, 9 through 11. This is God's impartiality at the end of the age. Here's what it says. There will be tribulation and distress from every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So there it is. Even at the end of the age, we, are, we all stand on level ground. If you can keep this one passage in mind, here's what you realize. This person that's in front of you that owns the company, this person that's before you that has the power to, to fire you or hire you or whatever, you're in an interview, you, what you realize is, is we're all walking on equal ground. We're all 100% human. We're nothing different from that. We have the same basic needs. We're all going to face Judgment Day one, one, one day. And God sees us kind of in, in, in those terms. These other things will pass away. All right, back to James. James 2.1 says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let me just show you something. First, the word favoritism or partiality, or your translation may have, have translated comes from this Greek word. I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but here's what it basically means. It means to take and lift up the face. And here's the idea behind it. The idea behind it is someone walking along, and you come and you look in the face to see, am I going to care or not? Are you worth my time or not? 
Are you a Jew or a Samaritan? Are you in my club or not in my club? Eh, no, you're not. Move along. Or, yeah, you're in. It's the idea of lifting up the face to see if you're going to accept or not. What James is saying is, knock it off. Stop that. That's sin. Now, this idea of holding on to your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, here's what, here's what I've come to see in terms of spiritual development. We sometimes grab the end of the rope, right, when we're crying out, God save me, Jesus, I need help, uh, rescue me from the wrath to come. I get it. And as we are holding tightly to our faith in Jesus Christ, we only have two hands. We're letting go of the world, right? We're letting go of other stuff. And I think the message here is pretty simple. It's this. Hold on to the faith in Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time, let go of favoritism. Let go of these ways that maybe have been ingrained in you from the way you're a child. Stop using the excuse of that's just the way my family is or that's just the way I'm wired. Repent of it and say, God, rid me of this. It's not of you. We're going to look in a moment at the life of Christ where we don't see any of this. And yet all of us struggle to fall into this thing of this person's worth my time, this person's not worth my time. Peter, uh, he actually illustrates this really well. Isn't it cool to see Peter grow? And we get to watch Peter grow up as a Christian. And here in the book of Acts, you can just write this down if you're taking notes, uh, but in Acts 10, um, Peter grew in a Jewish environment, realizing the Jewish superiority over every other nation. They were the chosen people of God. They'd been given God's word, right? They'd been led out of slavery and wandered through the desert and given a promised land and all of this. And Peter... Young Peter, who walks with Jesus, this is actually after Jesus died and rose again and is gone. But he's got the power of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's got the encourager with him who's leading him into all truth. And Peter comes to grips with the massive scope of God's plan of salvation. It's so much bigger than he had envisioned. And here's what he says. Just listen to it. I love this kind of, I don't know, childlike wonder where it's like, I got it. Whoa. I've been with Jesus for three and a half years. I've been a leader in the church. And listen to what he's getting. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Ah! But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, you have to read the Old Testament. You have to read the life of Peter and get into his head a little bit to understand what a massive breakthrough this is and how this altered basically every other day of the rest of his life. I mean, all of a sudden, the rest of his life, he's able to interact with people and think through people in a different way, right? So that's Peter growing and and showing that uh, he was showing partiality and he has been um, healed of that and shown a better way. James goes on to offer this clear example of exactly what he's talking about. I think if we just put up the command, love one another, it's easy for us to go, check, I'm doing that, right? I'm doing that, or I struggle a little bit, or with that kind of person, or whatever. James says this, don't show any partiality. Let me give you a clear-cut example. In church, when someone walks in, you tell them, sit over there, you go over there, and some have called this the, the case of the, the nearsighted usher, right? If we had an ushering team that came in and just and just treated people exactly the way the, the world would have treated them. Special class sections, first class, I mean, like an airplane, right, basically. Uh, that, 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 that just doesn't belong in the church. And James goes on to, to really spell it out clearly with a very tangible example, and then bringing the law into it, and says, so speak and act as ones who are going to be judged under that. Uh, Professor James is, is administering some tests. We've been talking about this. Let me just very quickly kind of bring, bring this back for a second. First part of, of James chapter 1 is talking all about trials. What he says is this. The way that you respond when you're being thumped on, when you're just in you know, the storm and you're getting pounded on, that's a test. And it's a test that you either emerge with, with a living faith and you say, wow, God is working on me. I'm clinging to God in this. God is producing even even more righteousness in me through this, or I'm bailing on the whole thing. I'm blaming God and I'm running from Him. It's a test to go through trials because you get to come out saying, wow, my faith really means something. It was tested and it's still here. That was the first test. Second test in verse 13 to 18, it's how you respond to temptation. You blame God, you throw it at everyone else, you blame shift and shove it elsewhere. 
or do you repent of it? Uh, 19 through 27, we've looked at this the last several weeks. How do you react to his word? The word is preached. Do you just hear it, look in a mirror, totally forget what's going on, and don't do it? What does he say that? He says that's worthless. It's fool's gold. I was at Hume Lake, and I saw some fool's gold in my hand as I was swimming around in the lake. And I can't remember who I was with, but I was talking to him, look, there's some fool's gold. There's, there's worthless religion. Let's just clamor our whole life for fool's gold and store it up and say, look at all that we've got. Worthless, James says, unless you're putting these things into practice. Now, here's the next test that he's administering. Do you show partiality? Do you show partiality? Your treatment of people is a test which reveals either a living, abiding, Holy Spirit-renewed vision for life and the people you interact with or not. And if you are interacting with and thinking about people the same way that you have always thought about people, I would say, find some time alone with the Lord and say, God, that's scary to see that. I don't want that. I see today that that is sin. The old leaves behind the world's criteria of who gets your attention. The new puts on eyes that see past labels and see past stereotypes. And more than eyes, it puts on a new heart that has suddenly a compassion for people, a mercy for people. Here's what's exciting. Uh, Knowing how much that God has redeemed you and me lets us marvel and anticipate all that God could do in every single person that we meet. I got to be at a wedding this last weekend, and I bumped into a kid who was in our college ministry. Actually, he came in high school. And he came at the invite of a kid who was at a public high school that I'm sure wore the label stout, geek, loner, and probably a few other not-so-nice things. That's probably the kinds of labels he wore. This kid had his heart stirred by Jesus, and he became a Christian. And he began inviting his non-Christian friends And I still remember the very first day I saw one of his friends that he brought. He brought some of the most ragtag people uh, in that high school group, and I'm friends with most of them to this day. One of them comes in, and at the end of one of the messages, we were talking about things, and I just asked, come meet by by the fireplace if you want to talk more. And He came back. He had never, ever, I said, what do you know about Jesus? And totally seriously, he goes, you mean other than a swear word? I said, yeah, other than a swear word. Nothing. This guy's entire family tree is bound by drug and alcohol abuse. Rampant through his whole family. And it was just this act of mercy that God led him into our little high school group. Uh, Long story short, he ends up giving his life to Christ. He ends up getting baptized. He ends up growing in Christ. And I've kept with him all these years. And I got to see him last night. And he said, Dave, you won't believe it. I said, what? And he just began to relay to me the fact that his mom is now a Christian and serving in the church. That his sister, who struggles with homosexuality, and the day that he came home and said he was a Christian, she said, that means you don't love me anymore, right? He said, no, 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 that's not it at all. She's now pursuing God and finding out what God has for her in her life. Her other sister, who was in prison and lost kids, is now a Christian and pursuing God. And shock of shocks, his dad, who as a youth pastor was combative to anything and everything his son was doing in the church, is starting to go to church. I looked at him, and as he's talking, I told him, like, dude, I'm just, I'm just getting chills. Was, I cannot. Isn't that so amazing? And he's like, I know, right? I mean, his whole family tree is being freed from the bondage of sin. I promise you, this kid got looked over by most everyone he met growing up. He wore so many labels. He had such a lousy negative view of himself. And God's restored that in him. And God's using him. And it's just unbelievable. That's the new that Christ brings to us. To play favorites is contrary to what it means to be a Christian. Listen to 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. You think John and James would have gotten along? I think so. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this, this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, I know what some of us go to and start to think about is this. Well, yeah, but, but, but who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? And am I my brother's keeper, right? These are themes we've seen in, in Scripture as well. Uh, Jesus was answering a lawyer who was trying to kind of muddy this up a little bit. He was trying to get real technical. He was trying to justify himself. He said, yeah, but who's my neighbor? Remember what, what, what story Jesus tells to him? It's the story of the Good Samaritan, right? He says, well, let me tell you a little story. And Jesus goes on to teach him about the Good Samaritan. Very quickly, there's, there's a guy that falls among robbers on the road to Jericho, and along comes a priest, along comes a Levite, both of whom are the spiritual religious echelon, and then along comes a half-breed Samaritan who are despised by the Jews. Who's the hero of the story? The Samaritan, right? The Samaritan comes along, not only tends, not only goes out of his way to meet him, but actually extravagantly meets his needs. And in Luke 10, 10 36, here's what Jesus wraps up with. Which of these three do you think provided or proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is him asking back to the lawyer. Smart guy. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Love this because it reveals this. The one who proved to be his neighbor, what? Did something about it. I imagine the priest and Levite, maybe they prayed for them a little bit even though they despised what was going on. It's not enough to just pray and walk on the other side. Go and prove yourself to be a neighbor. It also shows that the scope is huge. We looked at this last week in helping orphans and widows, right? I can't help everyone, Lord. There's so many orphans and widows. Don't let the fact that you can't help everyone stop you from helping someone, right? What if a hundred of us, a hundred of us in this room went out and help someone this year understand the gospel, grow in Christ, and become a Christian, and made a disciple, the, the Lord made a disciple through us. What would our church look like a year from now? Just tell me the obvious answer. Three services. Thank you, Chris. Right? Now, this isn't really about services and numbers, but do you get that picture? What is the leadership doing? The leadership is scrambling by God's grace, to continue to equip you as you're like, look, they're coming at me with questions. I've got to know what's, what's, what's to go on. We're scrambling with logistics issues of parking and how to move people in and out and all that kind of stuff. One person. One person. What if instead of 100, 99 of us kick back and watch the pastor do it? Right? Or the elder do it. Or that one guy who's super gifted at evangelism or is really outgoing and friendly. All of a sudden, we have a, an apathetic atrophied body and like a little pinky like struggling along right <laughs> doing stuff man this is just this is a blown wide open kind of scope that god says and here's what it makes it seem like is that anyone that god's put across your path today that's a potential for you to worship the lord jesus christ by loving them really really well if you don't know where to read ever by the way in the scripture some of you are following a bible plan and we're reading together this year it's been awesome i love it But if you ever just go, man, I'm off track. I don't know what I'm supposed to read. Go back to the Gospels. See who Jesus loved and see how he loved them. And then just emulate it. It will start to trickle out in your conversation, in your character, and in all kinds of things. Very quickly, let me show you a couple of examples. Jesus showing impartiality. Jesus had this way of of seeing through the shell of people. Now, granted, he was God, right? So he he was able to see into people's souls in a way that we can't. But listen to 1 Samuel 16, 7. This has to do with David and being chosen as king. Here's what it says. For the Lord sees not as man sees. There's a big truth. Man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. You don't know the criteria of how to judge everyone who's 100% human? You start looking at their heart. Look past the shell. That's a challenge sometimes. You got to peek around. You got to hunt around. You got to ask questions. You got to be patient. Because people are pretty good at their persona that we kind of put out there sometimes. Jesus loved the rich and the powerful and the notable. See the rich young ruler. See the centurion's son. Right? He interacted with those who were in authority and power, had the wealth. He also dealt with the shamed and the lonely and the destitute. See the woman at the well. She's coming out the well in the middle of the day because none of the other gals will be around there because she lives a pretty radical lifestyle. See Zacchaeus, who's up in a tree, and see 
Matthew, who's a tax collector, and some of these people whose careers have kind of locked them into this persona. They didn't necessarily want to be it, but that's their livelihood, and that's where they are, and they feel kind of trapped, and Jesus goes to all of them. Even the enemies of Jesus saw this trait in him. Listen to Matthew twenty-two sixteen, And they sent his disciples, these are those who are his enemies, to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Wouldn't that be amazing if that's one of the things people thought about us at our deathbed? They thought, man, you just weren't swayed by appearances. I don't know how you did it, but you saw right through me and you just saw me as a person. Thank you. And what a gift we can give to people if we can be like that. Pray that God would grow that in us. How about Paul? Paul's life was characterized by, by his focus on the next life. And he treated people as if the next life really existed. He treated his own well-being and comfort as if the next life really existed. Let me give you a couple very quick examples. In church, he confronts Peter. I love that this is in the scripture. He goes and he speaks the truth to Peter who was showing favoritism and acting one way around one group of people and acting another way around another group of people. And he's echoing what James is saying here. He's saying, this, 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 this isn't right. This can't be. He also did this in, in public crowds. Sometimes they were hostile toward him and wanted to kill him. Uh, he didn't pull any punches. Sometimes they were really favorable to him. And thought that, that, and thought that he spoke, you know, whatever, they, they elevated him. He also did this in court. He was before rulers and judges, and he would speak to them as men, and, and they would be taken aback, saying, are you trying to convert me too? And he goes, yeah, I'd hope that you become just like me, except for these chains, you know? And he would just talk to the rulers and those in authority. 100% human. How about in jail? They say, we're not buying it, we're putting you in jail. How does he treat the jailer? As a potential convert, right? Hey, we're going to do a little worship service, and when the, when the earthquake happens and the gates open up, hey, jailer, we're still here. All right, let's have a little evangelism party. Shares Christ with them, the whole household gets baptized. I mean, you just see, it's just all through his life, he's treating people as 100% human. He goes on a cruise ship. Not really, they're actually transporting him. He's a prisoner, Acts 27, right? He's cruising along, and he's telling people, here's what's going on. There's a God, and here's a, he's telling all this stuff. They shipwreck, okay, on Shipwreck Island. Here's the fickleness of crowds. Here's the silly partiality that goes on. You can see it in other cultures and other times. He gets there, right? He's making a fire. What happens? A snake fastens itself to his hand, a deadly snake that should kill him within minutes. It doesn't happen. As soon as it happens, the natives, who were unusually friendly, I just imagine happy natives. I don't know. I like that part. Um, but the happy natives, uh, all of a sudden they think, oh, see, he really was a criminal. This is God's justice to, to to him. He escaped the, the storm and the shipwreck, but now God's punishing him with this. Well, when he takes it, he just kind of shakes the, the uh, snake off. He's like, ah, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, he's like just quoting something. And then he doesn't die. He doesn't swell up. He doesn't get puffy. He doesn't keel over. What do the natives think of him? You're a god. You know, and all of a sudden, they went from, you're a lousy criminal. You deserve to die. Go back and just bury yourself to, we will worship you. And he's like, get up, knock it off. All the time, even keel, right? He just, and that's the fickleness of favoritism. He, he just, his life seemed to be completely characterized by that. I want to give you one more example. It's my grandpa. He's gone on to be with the Lord now. But he's my namesake and he's my oldest son's namesake. And on December 24th, I went to a wake, which is a bizarre name for someone who's dead, asleep. But it's where it's a viewing. For those of you who don't know, it's a viewing of a dead body there. And you're standing there and you are receiving people who are kind of there. My grandfather was a banker, he was in the military, and he was a treasurer of a of Spurs basketball team for 25 years. So at his wake on December 24th, Christmas Eve, here's what I saw. I saw these different people coming through the line, and coming through the line were, um, one guy was a, was a five-star general. There were many big, you know, kind of military bigwigs that were there present on Christmas Eve for my grandpa. The coach and several star players are there with their family just offering condolences. Many people that I've seen on TV and continue to see on TV and are, and are written about and are, nota- and, and, are, and, are, and are notable, then the bulk of the people are just friends and acquaintances and bankers that, that don't get written about, don't get noticed in this world. They're just kind of the average people, right, that are, that are there. And then here's what, here's what just, like my, my, my grandpa's character was screaming out from his casket. When I met this one guy who was a parking attendant where the Spurs play basketball, and he was there, 
And he went on to gush about my grandpa and about how the fact that um, he, just felt, he just felt like somebody in his presence. And, and he always made a point of calling me by name and stopping and talking to me and this, that, and the other thing. And when I went away from that experience was this. A, I'm glad I'm named after him. B, I'm glad I named my son after him. And C, I look at that and say, I want to live a life where if God ever lets me be around someone famous, I know one famous person so far, so that probably ain't happening. But if the rich and powerful come, the poor and destitute and nobodies will come as well. And they'll be there and they will say, man, Dave treated us like we were 100% human. He wasn't swayed by appearances. He wasn't swayed by my stuff or my lack of stuff. He just saw me as an imprint of God. I wonder if you bumped into the janitor and the company president on the same day at your job. If there would be a similar basic respect and time offered to both individuals. You could translate that for school or whatever else context. In closing, let me just say this. What about me? How about, how about you? How do you know if, if you are in this camp or not? How do you know where you need to grow? I would say pray and say, God, search my heart. Search my heart and, and bring to mind things and areas and ways that I'm doing this. Maybe in my own family, maybe unknowingly. Maybe you're struggling right now with one of your kids more than the other. Say, God, I, this is an extra grace required time with this kid or this person in my life or this neighbor. Would you just help me to get over that? Maybe it's someone right here in the body. Some healing that needs to go on. Some words that were said. Some misunderstandings. And you just pray for the grace to overcome that. One of the realities of this is that this will be, this will be revealed in your mouth, in your tongue. If you want to know what's in your heart, you listen to what you speak about. Favoritism starts in the heart. Look at verse 4. It says this. You become judges with evil thoughts, right? That's where sin begins. It begins in the mind. And you've already pegged people and said things and whatnot. But you know what it tends to do is it moves to the mouth. So how are you talking about people? How are you, how are you speaking about them? Little, little, uh, preview of James 3. James 3, 6 says this. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it, with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Here's a line we just sang. Let justice and praise become my embrace. That's action and word and thought and deed and our praise to God. Let those become our embrace. Let those come together. I want to invite the band up right now, and as they do, all through the week, I was, uh, I was with junior hires. Like I said, I had this passage just, you know, ruminating in my mind. I'm soaking, I'm rereading it, I'm thinking about it. And I just made a little what-if list, and I'm going to run through my, my what-if list very quickly with you uh, so, that, so that you can kind of um, just see some things, see if anything sticks. What if we refuse to ever put someone down based on his or her DNA? Just the way they look, the way that they, you know, that, that, that they have no control over. What if we saw each person as an image bearer of God? What if we questioned every voice telling us who or what is important? And I would say, including mine today, is what I've said truthful? Is it weighty? Is it eternal? Take the good of what's been said as you test it against scripture. And leave the rest behind. As the media is steering you into what's important, as stores put out Thanksgiving things right now to buy and be prepping for, like they always do, you know, you think, is it really necessary right now that I focus on, on this or that? Here's another one. What if we didn't jump to conclusions with people? What if we never reduced someone to a stereotype, including ourselves? Some of you have been given a stereotype and you've been living and walking in that. Don't reduce yourself to that either. What if we judged on the content of one's character rather than you fill in the blank? I heard a speech once back in the 60s. I wasn't alive, but I've seen it on video. What if we, uh, or yeah, what, what if we let God's non-issues become non-issues for us? What if we held tightly to faith and justice and then just let go of favoritism altogether? And what if we considered the most important person 
in the world is the one that God brings across our path, and we receive them as our neighbor and as our brother. We began to take the one another's of Scripture, starting with love one another, and we just began to apply it right then and there. I want to ask you just to close your eyes and bow your heads because I just want you to listen for a minute, and I'm going to close with the words of Jesus Christ uh, on this topic found in Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. God, I just pray that you would reveal yourself in our midst by the way that we treat one another. I pray that those who are known and obscure, those who are established and those who are brand new, would be loved here. Would you help us not to fall into the trap of making silly distinctions with each other that you have nothing to do with? God, we need your grace each day to walk as your sons and daughters. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us the way in this. Each one of us here, I pray that you join with me in committing your life, recommitting your life to walk the way of love. Whoever claims to live in Christ must walk as Jesus did. And Lord, we need your grace to do this and to do this well. God, just now as we offer up praise with our mouth, I pray that we would let that be the kind of thing that pours out from our life uh, as we leave this place, as we interact with people. God, as we right now give of our monies, we, we give it saying that it has no hold on us. We give it saying that we long for your kingdom to expand and grow. I pray for wisdom as leaders in this church. God, that we would pour effort and resources into the things that you're already doing in this city. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.